This episode is brought to you by Narcissism of Small Differences. Sure, it's easy to pick a fight with someone who advocates for the opposite of every facet of your core beliefs, but how do you pick that special fight with someone who essentially agrees with everything you do? Well, that's where Narcissism of Small Differences, or NSD, can save your fight-picking day. How do they do it? Hypersensitivity to details of differentiation to deliver a relentless capacity for feuds and mutual ridicule. NSD was founded by the Society for Human Brotherhood just before it was wiped out in a war of mutual destruction with the Human Brotherhood Alliance. When you sign up with NSD, each month you receive a petty but irksome difference of degree or concept with someone close to you. A religious practice that's performed for an esoterically wrong reason. A movie you hate and they don't hate enough. Or he calls science fiction fantasy sci-fi. And for our listeners who order at their website, use the promo code RERED, one word, to receive, free, your own taboo of personal isolation. That's narcissism of small differences. Be careful not to make a mistake and end up in intra-group conflicts, because that, I assure you, is a total scam. And thank you, Narcissism of Small Differences, for sponsoring the Rereading Wolf podcast. Welcome to this bonus edition of Rereading Wolf. Uh, this is a total diversion from our regularly scheduled discussion. Uh, of course, we're usually talking about the book of the new sun. But today, I wanted to talk to the famous slash infamous Mark Aramini. And I wanted to talk to him about something that's really curious to me, different approaches to reading Wolf. And I've reached out to Mark as a test case because, in my opinion, Mark and I approach Wolf's writings very similarly. We tend to agree on a lot of rather singular things, especially regarding the book of the long sun and the short sun. But, and this is strange to me, how wildly we disagree once we get past those particular issues. Definitely. Yeah. I consider Mark an an old friend, uh, even though we've only met face-to-face just once in Chicago, right? Yes, but what a wonderful night that was. That was really awesome. Yeah. Uh, Gene Wolfe was inducted into the Chicago uh, Literary Hall of Fame, and that was just really terrific. Uh, And also, uh, when Mark was going to war on the Earth list with his greenish ushes theory, I invited him to post his first comprehensive write-up on the theory on my webpage, uh, The Elucidation of the Long Sun, which is gone, but I have everything I wrote on it. So, you know, we're going to disagree a lot, but just remember there, this is a friendly war. So we're, we're, we, we might take prisoners, but uh, we will always return them in the end. Exactly. So. They're not going to be executed or tortured. That's right. Well, That's okay. We're torturing maybe. We'll okay. See. A little bit. Yeah. <laughs> Depends on how, how loud we get here. But um, <laughs> in general, right, what I wanted to say real quickly is that, yeah, this is one of those things that I've argued about for so long that whenever I talk about it, I come across... I can come across as kind of kind of a jerk in my insistence, <laughs> my insistence on certain points, and I really don't mean to be that way. Everybody has the right to read these books in the way that is most enjoyable to them. But I'm one of those people who does honestly believe that Wolf had an intention, and mm-hmm. that oftentimes we can get to the bottom of that with rigorous, logical, structural thinking about the text as a whole. And uh, so that kind of informs my approach. And it seems really totalitarian and, uh, (laughs) you know, like totalizing. But in reality, if you don't like it, hey, 
that's fine with me. Read the book in a way that you love. So, but we're going to talk about those structures a little bit today, I think. Yeah. Yeah. And just so you know, look, this is every bit as spoilerific as any uh, Book of the New Sun episode. Oh, so yeah. If you haven't beyond. Read... Beyond spoiling. <laughs> right. <laughs> very much so. So if you haven't read Long Sun or Short Sun, you know, it's fine, but we're going to spoil it, the heck out of it. Yeah. I recommend they, they, they turn it off right now. Just, just stop, <laughs> read the books, and then come read them twice, and then come back. Yeah. Yeah. That's always a good idea. Okay. Let's Book of the Long Sun, Book of the Short Sun. Let's talk about things we we probably agree with that I okay. think we agree with. Okay, definitely. So one of the yeah one of the things I definitely think we agree with is that those th- those embryos and stuff and everything on the cargo that they are related to Typhon and that Typhon probably has clones or iterations of himself or his family that are at work in the text. It, it, I mean, stated flatly in the in the text that. Mukor and Silk are both clones like those, but I think we both agree that Silk is a clone of of Typhon. Yes, it was a hard sell for me because I didn't want to believe that. (laughs) But some of the imagery, some of the imagery, I just couldn't deny it in the dream sequences, especially one where um, Silk has a dream about Matera Marble, and she is born on a litter of six and one of those, one of her litter bearers is blind, and they take her to the church. And at the church, the prelate is Mucor, and the Mucor is very angry at Silk. And so when you look at that, Marble was possessed by Echidna, who had seven children. Six of her children there, um, one of them is blind, Tartaros. It's like a one-to-one correlation. Who is the head of the church in Byron? Scylla is. So Mucor takes the role of Scylla in that particular dream. And what is she trying to do? She's trying to delete past from mainframe at this time. So that dream directly correlates Silk and uh, Typhon slash pass in a way that I just can't argue against, especially with some later visions in uh, Short Sun. That's one that I don't disagree with. And we'll get to those, the ones that were, they're kind of in on, on the cusp. Right. Um, I don't necessarily disagree with that interpretation, but I don't necessarily buy into it. But there are just so many other things right, for, right. that convince me that, oh, okay. Because at first I wanted to believe that Silk was an embryo of the son of Typhon. Exactly. So did I. Yes. Yeah. I wanted to believe that, but eventually, you know, all of the references, I, I had to come to the decision that yes, no, no, Silk is, is Poss. And all of the talk about bringing Poss to blue, that's because we're bringing Silk to blue. Exactly. And at the end he leaves to set humanity free from Typhon's reign at last. Because he knows as long as he's there, there's the possibility that he'll return. And um, one of the things that I, I think is also indicative of this is in the scene in Long Sun where they're trying to return the fragments of Pass uh, to you know make him come alive again, basically, in mainframe or the database is there. They have to sacrifice Sand, who is uh, the chem. They have mm-hmm. to sacrifice Sand, and a portion is in Jerboa. And when he gives up that portion of Pass, Jerboa passes away and dies, right? And then yeah. Sand has to be killed. Uh, kind of during that ceremony. And Silk thinks to himself, in some higher reality, I am a cognate of sand. And um, the way that that works really is that Silk, the personality that is Silk, would have to be sacrificed for Typhon to, to really return and take up residence in that body again. That's how, that's how, exactly how he's a cognate of sand. Um, and so I think there's so many things like that that just line up so well when you look at it as a whole that it's hard, it's hard to argue against. I think I agree about the 
uh, narrative import of that moment, but I think we disagree perhaps on some of those items. So let's, but I want to save those. I want to, I want to stay okay. with the ones that I know we agree with. Okay. So let's see the next thing. Um, we, do we agree that, that the Kims are also somewhat possessed, that they are personalities the, uh, of Typhon's household as well? Or do we not agree on that? Not so much, but I can probably be convinced of that. Okay. Uh, there's something there's something really weird about Marble's personality, the way that ah. she kind of is um, impersonating somebody in the picture and then taking on Rose's parts as well. Mm -hmm. There's so many aspects to her. And at the end, Silk keeps thinking, gosh, Marble, Marble is another part of that that's deceiving me in this world that's kind of fallen and false. And that's part of... Yeah, I'm almost positive I could convince you of that okay. uh, based on just the conversation that Silk has with uh, Mamelta. Okay. Uh, I think we both agree that Mamelta is probably the original Kypris. Yes, definitely. That was uh, and, one of my yeah big things that I've always tried to push. And, and do we also agree that Silk's mother is a clone of Mamelta? No, his his real. I think there's a distinct. There's the adopted mother, and then there's actually just Mamelta. So that when he has the vision and he sees the one woman, he he looks up and he says, "Oh, you were my mother. I understand now." That he sees, in fact, Mamelta, and that the other woman is the mother who raised him, who was Tusa's mistress, and not a clone. Well, wait a minute. So, if that's true, then. Are you saying that Mamelta is is Typhon's mother? No, um, that's the that's the hard part. That's where I don't understand how to really break it down. Ah, well, I think I do. Okay, here's the, here's here's my understanding. Mamelta, original Kipris. Yes. Silk's mother, who was you know uh, implanted with his embryo, was a clone of Kipris Kipris, and Marble. In the same way that the Inhumi have carried the souls of the people who their their mother fed on, the Kems carry the souls of the of members of of Typhon's household. They are essentially little walking windows. So just as Pas appears in the windows, the personality, the soul of Mamelta lives in marble. And which is why when he when he's going up those stairs with uh, Mamelta, he says, I'd "Like you to meet uh, Marble. I think you two would have a lot in common." Okay, that's yeah, that's interesting. That really is interesting, especially since Marble is eventually possessed by Echidna, mm -hmm. which you know really makes things weird. But there, but there's a scene. I think that's also symbolic. He's going to see like the origin of humanity when he looks out at the stars. You know that he didn't really understand. And there's that scene where he kind of sees the nudity of Mamelta when he sees, you know, her loins mm -hmm. there above him. And I think that's symbolic of the same kind of thing. And there's even verbiage in that scene. He's uh, next to her in the elevator and he says, I was reminded of being held by my mother. Right. You know, there's so many things in that that just really, really evoke the mother imagery. Mm -hmm. And then in the dreams as well, you get stuff like, um, the, the. I'm going to read this one. It's from Caldea the Long Sun. The outsider was the dancing man on a toy. And the water, the polished toy top on which he danced with Kypris, who was Hyacinth and mother too. First romance sang the outsider with the music box. First romance. It was why he was called the outsider. He was outside. 
And then we get another dream where Mamelta is included in that list, right? Who was Hyacinth? Who was Kypris? Who was Mamelta? Mm-hmm. Um, so, you know, those close equations. The only thing that doesn't happen, though, is you don't get marble listed in that group of women who are the mother. Mm-hmm. Um, so I, I, I've always had a problem with whether, cause see in my original, <laughs> original plan, it was Mamelta is Kypris. She's been altered, you know, not even a clone, just altered. Her mind has been wiped. She was thrown on the ship. Um, and one of the things that I think Wolf does, uh, quite frequently is he'll, he'll set up little verbal tricks. Like for example, calling the dogs in the tunnel, the gods in the tunnel. So if I ask you a question, are there gods in the tunnels? You have to say yes, because there are gods in the tunnels, right? I think that's how Wolf works a lot, those little puns and those little things like that. So that's how we can know. Are there gods in the tunnel? Well, of course there are. And so I think um, Mamelta was the original of Kypris, but I don't know how to reconcile that with, as you asked, whether that was Typhon's incestuous relationship with a mother that kind of like, he has himself implanted in his own mother. What is going on there? That's bizarre. Well, she's, um, I mean, yeah, but yeah. she, I mean, she'd have to be on ice if you, she were right, right, an actual right. mother because right. she's very young. Yeah. So, all right, well, let's, uh, let's move on from that. Okay. Something else we agree on that dream travel is time travel. Yes, definitely. Right. And the big major sign for that is Pike's ghost. That's the first occurrence. Yes. Who is the narrator. Right. That's the narrator of the long. Oh, short son. I'm not so, I'm not so sure that it's the first occurrence, depending on what you mean by timeline, but that's... Well, in, in reading the books, in reading Long Sun and Short Sun, yes. this is the first evidence we see of time travel. That's because right. Because Orb is upstairs when his wing is broken downstairs. That's and, right. And later... we know, And we know this for a fact because, because of Orb. And Orb right. dr- flies out the window and fades away. But also, the uh, Pike's ghost fades away in a very distinctive way that we are familiar with the way uh, people in dream travel fade away. Exactly. And his little culotte, I think, uh, or however you pronounce that, falls to the ground. Uh-huh. Yeah. Uh, okay. So let's see. And then we also agree that, you know, when um, Encanto's mother tells the story of her childhood or her mm-hmm. youth when she had suitors, Silk shows up there randomly, right? Yeah. With, with and Orab. And Orab. <laughs> Shows up with Orb. Yeah, exactly. And it's clearly him and he's clearly in the story. And it's not just like I have the ability to appear in stories. No, he went back in time and interacted with them and caused that story to kind of occur as it did. Right. Yeah. Yeah, go on. And there's another scene and it's so wonderful. He's talking to one of those girls. I don't remember if it's Mora or Faba. And in the middle of it, he fades back into the death of Crate, like right in the middle of talking to her. He's like, oh, I was looking down at a man I'd never met before, and he was dying. And he kind of sees the death of Crate because he goes mm-hmm. back into, into time in the middle of a waking scene. Um, mm-hmm. And, you know, people say, oh, there's no time travel. It's like, how do you explain this? Just like this vision <laughs> quest? He went back in time right in the middle of a scene. Uh, so, right. you know, it does happen in the book. Yes. Yeah, it definitely happens in a book. Then of course the the big one that you're that you're quite famous for is <laughs> that green is earth. Right. If you want, I want to. I mean, I don't know if we should, but I kind of want to talk about eventually the chain of logic that led me to that because it's very specific. It's in a specific order. Oh, okay. That the revelations came in a specific order. So first, um, and and it's tied to character. Yeah. Yeah. Well, okay. But first of all, but. but Let's be honest here. 
first appeared to you that it's blue. I was going to go into that. Yes. Oh, okay. Good. All right. That's that's what I'm saying. I'm going to go into all the whole the whole thing from the whole sad story, the whole terribly tragic <laughs> yeah tale of of a boy and his hero. So uh, yeah. So what I first noticed something weird the second time I read it was that at the end of On Blue's Waters, Horn says or Silkhorn. Right. Whoever, that's what we'll call him for now. Silkhorn. I know. But I, as you know, I hate that name. Yes, I know. I know. So the the personality inside the body of Silk, who is writing the story, the Rajan of Gone, the Rajan oh, yeah. of Gone is sitting there and he's writing. And then all of a sudden he says, goodbye, Nettle. And then it switches like his whole personality changes. And all of a sudden, all he can think about is that Hyacinth was dead and then he says, I should have been more careful in my life. I should have looked at the positive things. I should have talked about how this guy smiled. Um, I should have lived my lives differently. Then he says, I caught the ball. I won the game. So there had been some blending of silk and horn before that. But at this mm-hmm. particular point, all of a sudden, he's really worried about Hyacinth. And there's a symbolic moment there where he's talking about Hyacinth and I were cleaning the nettles away from hollyhocks. And I think that's one of those symbolic moments that Wolf does where all of a sudden nettle isn't important anymore or not as important because she's been replaced with Hyacinth and his priorities. Um, and so that at that moment, I think that's when the silk person comes to the fore. And it even shows in the way that the tale is told because On Blue's Waters was all about the past. I horn did this. I went and did this and this and this and this. And then you expect more of that in In Green's Jungles. But when he picks up the narration, he's telling about what he did. And when he tells about Horn's sojourn on Green, he does it in the, in the um, third person. He's like, there was a man on Green. Let me tell you about him. Mm-hmm. And then when he actually runs into Crate later, he says, I've never met you before. Because of course, Crate knew Horn, the part of his personality that had fled. And so I was looking for where, you know, Horn could have gone. And there's that moment where Babby um, cuddles with, uh, with whoever he goes to seek out in the forest there. And he realizes, you know, that he'd been called Silk and Horn and that now people were calling out to Babby. And so it reminded me of that prophecy. I see you, Horn, riding a beast with three horns. And I said, wow, the beast with three horns is is Babby. And it's going to have Horn now inside him. That's where he went. And then later when they do the astral travel, he looks more human. And when he runs into his son Hyde, when Hyde, it might be, it's either Hoof or Hyde. I think it's Hyde. When Hyde introduces himself, Babby is super excited. He hugs him and he starts pointing at his tusks and he starts saying, ha, 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 you know, and so he keeps doing that. And of course, even though Babby always said that, you know, Wolf is, was being clever. Right. Mm-hmm. He's trying to say horn at that particular point. Um, so I've always believed that horn, the beast with three horns was in Babby. Most of the book, the, the rest of the two books, right. Throughout in green's jungles to the end of return to the world. When we see Babby go through astral travel and look mysteriously human. Okay. So my idea about Babby is that Babby is like the, is like my understanding of the abos in the fifth head of Cerberus, a bit like like Rose's hands that Marble gets, in that she puts them on, and just by their proximity, they absorb her personality. And Babby is like that. The longer he's with Horn, the longer he absorbs his personality. He runs when Horn goes away. He eventually runs off into the woods and becomes more like an animal. And then when he comes back, the parallels to Horn 
show up even within Babby's soul so that when the narrator is sailing, he actually can see Horn's personality in his soul in Babby. It, it, in a very real sense, Horn has gone into Babby and Horn continues to exist in Babby. But I think our idea of the mechanics of how this works is a little different. Right. Because mine is that when he says goodbye to Nettle, that's the moment when Babby comes under the tree. I believe he transfers fully into Babby. And, you know, Huss is um, the term Husswife means housewife, right? So Huss is mm-hmm. a term for house. And Windcloud later at the trial in Dorp will say, ah, yes, I know you. I know Silkenhorn. You have both spent time in my house. Well, right. there is no house that he actually stayed in. Um, the only thing that we actually have is that he was actually in the Huss there. Um, right. Well, actually, I get. We, I think we we very much agree on that symbolism, which is once again what I something I find very interesting, in that the narrator talks about the soul and how one dies. That the that the soul is is in a house, and they and the soul leaves, mm-hmm. and then the. Uh, but if the house is destroyed, then the soul leaves, and I'll have to consider that. I. I I wonder if there's something in there that is kind of an allusion to what's going on with Babby, because I think, and I think we both agree that the right. long son, the short son, Wolf is playing with souls like crazy, right. moving them around and right. seeing right. how things do work. Yeah, they can move around, and the person is more than just a body. The person is the soul. The other thing is that there is a constant dream of Horn being uh, stalked by this thing with tusks that is always mm-hmm. stalking for him and coming for him. And this is actually Babby when Babby's approaching, because this is his ultimate destiny, is that he's going to be ensconced in this beast forever. Um, so those nightmares of the tusk thing approaching, it's ultimately a friend. Is, is Babby approaching as well? Because that's like the fear, you know, that he has that his dissolution will involve that. So there's a lot of different things that are involved in that, but there's something stalking Horn in his dreams. And I think that it maps very well to Babby. We both agree what's going on. And we just, it, it, the mechanics, but the mechanics make all the difference. Right. And my mechanics is that the, the trees are the vanished gods and that they can do whatever they want. They have the power to transmigrate souls just like uh, the vanished people did with uh, with Horn originally, you know, going into Silk. So then when right. Horn is inside Silk later on, he's sitting under the tree. It has the power to take him. He says, goodbye, Nettle. Goodbye. I need to sacrifice myself. So he leaves and goes into Babby. Mm-hmm. It's the same basic mechanism both times for me. Yeah. It's just that I think. Oh, I definitely agree with that, by the way. I definitely agree that the the, the trees are the vanished gods, that the trees are the, right. the vanished neighbors. I once again, but but this plot, actually the, the backstory in the plot is so intricate that you can have a slight different opinion about mechanics or backstory, and it can dramatically change what you what you interpret that means. Right. And so for me, in order for the prophecy to be fulfilled, I see you horn riding a beast with three horns. Um, mm-hmm. prophecy he has to actually like go into that and then later the way that he behaves with the sun I just really feel that that is him and the poignancy of that whole thing is that they don't recognize that their father is there meanwhile Silk is just in denial about who he is he's like no 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 I'm, I'm still Horn because he just cannot accept the sacrifice that Horn made for him and I think it was a real sacrifice and I think at the end when you know Silk uh, Silk nodded or whatever in agreement that Horn did not fail it has to really be purely Silk at that point in order for that that redemptive arc for horn to have real meaning so that's why 
I think he's uh, gone there. And that's that's my reading yeah. of Abby, that that's the, the mechanism through which Silk is allowed to be alone in the body, even if he doesn't recognize it or denies yeah. it. Because I also think that Silver Silk or Silent Silk or whoever is inside Pig might almost serve as a reboot so that when the eye goes in there, then that spirit inside there or that copy can actually go into the body of Silk and strengthen him again. So I think it's like this big circuit that's going between Horn and Silk, and it's playing with the hybrid alloys as well. Silver Silk was too soft, but Iron Horn with him kind of strengthens him um, and makes an alloy that's a little tougher, even though at the end it's still Silk. I mean, I think that's another bit of the imagery with hybrids that's going on. Yeah, and I, I think Wolf kind of does a similar thing with that in Home Fires, right? Yes. Where we have an, an, an arm... That seems to yes. carry the the soul of the person. Yes, uh, Jane Sims. I'm not sure what that what that says about Wolf's own personal beliefs about the soul. Maybe nothing. Probably nothing. Maybe nothing. But it, that he continu- continually uses that device mm-hmm. to transfer souls around. Well, I'm gonna. I'm very interested here because first of all, I although I do agree that green is earth. I'm interested in finding out how it is um, something that we actually don't agree with that led me to green as earth regarding. Yeah. Regarding the, the nature of the right. narrative regarding Horn, the death of Horn. So uh, for me, green as earth for me, right at the end, when silk, when it says silk nodded for me, that tells me that it really is silk that has come and that Horn didn't fail to return his hero. So for me, the big theme of it is, you have to eventually recognize what you are is what you are. And so this this setting of this green and blue planet, when I saw that theme, I said, it's got to be the same planet. It has to be, you know, that we're in the solar system. Um, and there's a story that Silk tells in Return to the World where he talks about a boy and his mother who were sent out of town by a friend of the mother and then called back into town. And when they returned, they got lost and they stopped at a neighbor's house to sleep and the mother fell asleep. And then the boy went out and he found a very old man who was stained with sin. And that old man had tears, you know, and they went together and they just basically got lost and never found home again. And for me, that is one of those one-to-one allegorical moments where the boy and his mother are silk and Kypris going out there, the world in the world, the world gets called back to the planet Um, And the friend of the mother is, of course, Typhon. Now, the thing about the story that's creepy is that the mother's friend kept a razor at the house to say that he would come back. That was the sign that he was going to come back. So that implies a sacrifice for his return at the house. Um, When they stop at the neighbor's house, that's like stopping at, at Blue. Right. So it really maps very well onto this world as kind of a circular journey where when he encounters that tear stained old man, those are the inhumi with the sins of, of their species heavy upon them. And they can no longer even kind of recognize themselves as human, even though Jali at one point says to the narrator, we're the same race. Why won't you admit it? I mean, that's directly in the text where she says that, like, why won't you admit that we're the same species? Um, so for me, the inhumai are basically one of the routes that humanity can come to through kind of like a very strange symbiotic relationship with, with other material. So we'll talk about that in a bit because it took me a while to come to that because first I was like, okay, the personality of Horn winds up in Babby at a very particular point at the end of On Blue's Waters. What is the mechanism? Yeah, I have my own opinion about that. So the mechanism, the 
he's under a tree when he does it. He's under this big, huge tree, right? And then he says, um, it's one of the vanished gods, right? And then there's all this tree imagery that continues throughout there. And then it turns out that the islands are even made of these fern-like trees. When the storm comes, he's creeped out because he realizes the islands are made of trees. So when he falls into this maw on one of the, in the pit, um, Horn originally, and dies, as we both agree on that, that he dies in the pit. Yep, we do. That's something else we agree on. We agree that, that Horn died in that pit. Yeah. Because it's straight up, that's what Sirach says. You were dead. And dead things are food. And this is the important part. Dead things are food. And then on green, there are the trees that eat trees that eat trees. And so there's all this indication of something very sinister that's involved with consumption and the trees. They're not just regular trees. They eat things. And the only thing, the only problem they haven't solved on um, green, according to the text, is the liana vines. And so when I started to see that these trees were doing all kind of wonky stuff, even um, Weiser, right? When Weiser sends him out on the trail, he's like, things that are too big not to see, you won't see. And he starts drawing these trees, basically, all over the map. Um, so Wolf, Wolf is pointing all kind of fingers at these trees here, and they're doing all kind of things. But when he falls in that pit, uh, the key thing that's kept returning to me was dead things are food. Because later, when Silk is in the forest, he kind of does that Eucharist scene, right? And he says, they were behind me. I couldn't turn around and look at them because I knew it would cause some problem. And he basically reenacts the whole Catholic Eucharist, like, this is my body, eat of it. And I was like, wait a minute, the food. The food, why are the trees cannibal trees? And then um, I was reminded of the Alzebo. And I thought, okay, I think what's happening here is actually that moment of hybridization where blood becomes vegetable and vegetable becomes blood because the end scene when Silk cries, the final scene that makes him realize that he is in fact Silk is that Remora. Is it Remora? You think he's studying? I think of him as a... William F. Buckley. Okay. Yeah. Yeah. He kind of beats around the bush a lot. Erm. Uh, well, exactly. Right. Yes. So he reads that passage, though trodden beneath the shepherd's heel, the wild hyacinth blooms on the ground. And of course, that's uh, kind of evoking that hyacinthus myth where the discus hits, I think, uh, Apollo's young lover because the wind is jealous and the blood falls on the ground and then the flower blooms. And so I saw that this book in the very middle and at the end had this scene of blood. And, you know, one of the things that uh, I think brother and sister and whoever their parent unit was at the end of Ampus Water say is, oh yeah, you've met them. You've met the vanished people. Share, you've shared, shared blood with them. And so that blood, I think, was very important because I realized this Eucharist was symbolic of what had actually happened. The hybridization of the first chapter that is it's ad nauseum. It's gone on like, what does this have to do with where we came from? And it's never explicit. But that hybridization of human and vegetable that is written into the text in such a huge way, because even in the male-female namings, you have a plant and an animal, a plant and an animal. It's in every single relationship in the book. And so I realized at that point that what had happened was when he fell into the pit, hybridization occurred. That is how the vanished people are created. So this is where we differ a little bit. You think that he becomes a vanished person. No, I, I, I think the vanished person already existed. I think that the body of Horn is a puppet. I think that I think that the the vanished person, when resurrecting Horn, has access to all of Horn's memories, and we can get into it. But there's a there's a reason why this this being is motivated to believe that he is Horn. This is another. It's almost the wolf character 
who has forgotten who he is and must rediscover it. Right. And so for me, the one who has forgotten who he is is Silk. Silk is in denial about everything because he can't accept that Horn sacrificed himself. He can't accept that humanity is dead. He can't accept anything except he has to say, no, I'm Horn. I'm not Silk. Uh, Horn is still alive. He's still inside here. And so I think that he really is Silk and he has to be Silk at the end for Horn not to fail. So what I think happens when he goes into the pit is that vanished person is born and a power that is much like the power of the Claw of the Conciliator, that power from Yassad, that blue light comes and resurrects the body of Horn such that he's resurrected. And then when he meets the neighbor later who shakes his hand, he says, I'm Horn. And the neighbor says, I'm Horn too. I believe that that is kind of his son almost, right? That he was kind of created from the blood and the incorporation of that bloodly matter into the vegetable nature of the trees there. And that that's written into the Eucharist scene. And so that's my whole understanding of all the life that is on blue and green. Now, this is the, the thing. It's all doubled. And hybrids have doubled the genetic content because they have the genetic content of both parents. There's no like meiosis or mitosis for sexual recombination. It's just hybridization. And so future generations, if they have sexual intercourse, may have that genetic content. But I think the doubled limbs are a symbol, as much of a symbol as Wolf could give us, that they were in fact hybrid life forms. And that first chapter, I, I really believe that first chapter is all about that, as well as the hybridity of silk horn. In order for silk to survive, he had to be reinforced with a different kind of man, the toughness of horn, but he didn't have the goodness of silk. So in order for that goodness, that weak suicidal goodness to persevere, horn had to kind of be in there and become a part of him. And so I think that the magic that horn shows where he can walk through kind of the woods without being snagged, that that's just part of his deal with the vanished gods, that he has those qualities now. I know that you think that his figure is something like a conciliator between vanished person and humanity. Right, exactly, exactly. He's 100% neighbor, he's 100% man, which is why he is, he is the mediator. He is another Christ. Whereas I see him, I see him as a progenitor of a new race of vanished people. And he gave the go ahead that his people could be eaten more or less um, and recombined with to bring back new generations of vanished people. And so later on, when um, they're at the trial in Dorp, and I think Windcloud appears, there's this great scene where the judges ask, how could this man here not be a traitor to his race if he has any allegiance to you? And Windcloud just smiles and said, it's not a problem. It, it really isn't a problem. You know, he's like, he's not a traitor to his race. Let me show you why. And then where does he take them? He takes them back to Earth, right? So Windcloud takes everybody back to Earth in that scene, uh, because obviously that's the joint ancestry that they share. And so for me, I knew that not much time had to pass for these planets to be the same ones because of that instant speciation. That's what hybridity is. In one generation, you can have a completely different species that is unique. And so as long as these trees that eat trees that eat trees are eating new creatures and hybridizing with them through some mysterious agency that is much like the Eucharist, then you have a generation that instantly appears as a new species based on what they ate. And then the liana vines kind of assume some of that. And so the liana vines are the inhumi, the nascent form of them. And that's how when there's no inhumi present, silk can still undergo that astral travel because he has his staff with him that was cut from a liana vine and it walks in the night in Dorp. So that's how I knew that it could be the same place and that indeed it had to be the same place because this was the union of man and vegetable. 
So, um, so basically, with that hybridization, right, I knew that we had a chance here for not many generations to pass. And so I kept looking for a way for blue to be earth. I was like, okay, blue has to be earth, you know, um, double darkness, feel the skies. And so I was looking for a mechanism, but I couldn't find one at all, right? I just, I was like, there's no way for there uh, to be a different passage of time between the time they show up and the time that has passed for Regolio, who was actually from Earth and recognizes it when they show up on Earth the first time. I kept looking at that scene. I was like, I just don't get it. And so at the time, I was in contact with Gene Wolfe. And I wrote him a little Christmas card. I guess we can talk about this. And in the Christmas card, I had a tree, right? A tree. And I drew little eyes and teeth in it. And on the front, there was a long haired man with a staff. I happened to find mm -hmm. the perfect card. And I drew little teeth and eyes on that, a little blood stain or something dripping down from it. And inside that Christmas card, I delineated the hybridization that I believed was responsible for that instant speciation that would allow the lianas to be the nascent inhumi and that the vanished people would actually be a hybrid of humanity and these vanished gods, the trees. And I said, but I can't find a mechanism for blue to be earth and for there to be a different passage of time. I was like, does he travel through kind of the edge of the universe uh, astrally and come back? Like, is that why the light seems far off? And I, I was like, I just can't do it. And so his response on the Christmas card there was on the inside, I like the spruce and the staff too. And he underlined the two. And then on the back, when I turned it over, it said, no, no, no. Green is earth. And I was like, what? And I went back and I looked at exactly the scene I'd been looking at. And Silk had been thinking about how at that particular moment, he wanted to show the people what green was like before the evil of the Inhumai came and they wind up on Earth. And then I was like, oh my gosh. And then I read the description of the city of the Inhumai. He's like, it's really just like Nisus, except we're not in Nisus. Then he's like, I had to think about that for a little bit. Um... You know, so like there's there's so many moments that equate the two. And then when you read the description of the tower that Horn dies in with one of its cracked plates, it exactly matches the description later on of the of the uh, the Madison Tower. So like that moment, I was like, holy crap, you know, the, he died in the mannequin tower. Now, the problem was, of course, that I didn't know what to do with blue and Wolf had done such a good job of really messing with every perception because not only did he have it so that they had normal gravity on Blue, mm -hmm. there's a scene where Horn is climbing the tower in astral travel and it seems like he's super light. So that you think, okay, green is the moon. That was such a dirty trick. <laughs> but really, the explanation for that is just that he's he's not really a substantial physical body. That's right. He's not a real tangible one, and that's why he's lighter on that particular planet. But man, that was that's dirty. It really is. So eventually, I came to realize that blue was Vertandi or, or Mars, and I, I I can talk about that a little bit later. We can talk more about what yeah. we disagree on for a little bit. And then uh, maybe if we can reconcile some of that, I'll, I'll go more into the Vertandi. Okay. Well, I do agree that Earth is green. And literally the only explanation I need is that scene where the narrator is talking about, now let's all travel to, to green. Mm -hmm. And they don't go to green. They land on Earth. And yes. the way I read Wolf that is about as good a sign as you're going to get that, oh, okay, Earth is green. 
And I think I understand why it was narratively necessary or interesting to Wolf to have the colonists go to the future of Ushus, of Earth. And that is because we have a little story of the creation of the Hierogrammates yes. in the Book of the New Sun. We, there were these evil men, and they tortured these, these little animals, these creatures, until they be, had sentience. And those creatures became the Hierogrammates. I'm pretty confident at this point that that is the story that we are seeing. We are seeing the beginning of this. We have the neighbors. They are humanity's future. And they have taken these creatures. Where did they come from? They came from the stars, another planet. Doesn't matter. Point is that they changed them so that they could use them as, well, as, as biological versions of the chems. They use them as slaves. They could use them for warfare. The trouble that they did not understand in doing that is that they were predatory people. And when they ensouled these creatures with their own blood, they were creating enemies of themselves, another predatory species that was eventually overwhelmed them. And some of those, those people... In order to escape from this plague of Inhumi, we we have uh, some open plot here. I don't have an answer to. I suspect that's probably why uh, Blue was brought in, so that they could have another place to go outside of what was left of the ruins of their civilization on Green. Yeah, I've got a different take on it. Uh, Okay. They had to change in order to be saved from the Inhumi. They had to cease to be predatory. So what they did was they changed themselves. They changed themselves into a form that did not need to prey on other species. Okay. And that is the trees. Okay, except the trees eat trees eat trees. Well, not live trees. Well, no, that's that's one of the things that's overtly said about the trees, that they, they're cannibal trees. They eat their own. And so I think they're still predatory. you have the text? Uh, let's see here. Uh, we do get a strangling lianas cover the cannibal trees of green on um, chapter six. The lianas are not, are not humanity. They are not the future of humanity. They are the... Cre- they- see, I think it's split into Morlock and Eloy. I think that somebody at some point says that, that his staff made from Eliana is an inhuman. Yes, I, I see that. Yeah, it's walking around. It's got the little face on it. Here, listen to this one. It may be that it covers them as orchids cover our trees here in Gone, or as strangling lianas cover the cannibal trees of green. Uh, those trees that eat trees, I just, I don't know why I'm having a hard time finding. But do they eat living trees? Well, see, that's the thing about wolf. You're going to assume that they don't, but of course they're eating everything that comes to sight. Oh. <laughs> uh, here we go. Here we go. Okay. On green, one finds trees without number. Monstrous cannibals, 10 times the height of the tallest trees I saw on the island. But they're forever at war with their own kind and are troubled all the while by the trailing, coiling, murderous lianas that have seemed to me the living embodiment of evil ever since I first beheld them. So there was nothing of green here save the huge trunks and bluffs and rocky outcrops resembling green's distant towering escarpments. So these monstrous cannibal trees are at war with each other on green. I may have to abandon the assumption that the reason they became trees 
was to um, make themselves safe from the inhuman. Right. So now I'm going to give you my origin story, which is also from Book of the New Sun. So you know that I believe that they were hybrids, right? That the vanished people were hybrids of those vanished gods and humanity, and that all the species were hybrids, and that this involved the Eucharist imagery, the, the starting chapter with the hybridization, and the ending symbolism of Hyacinthus, where blood turns into a flower. Um, and that this allowed that passage of time to not be important, like one generation could make all these different species. And that is in The Tale of the Boy Called Frog in Book of the New Sun, which starts with Ovid's um, story of the birth of Mars, where Juno, or early summer, is walking along, and then a tree impregnates her, and she gives birth to Spring Wind, who is, of course, Spring Mars. Um, And so for me, um, so this moment, right, where Mars is born of this hybridization. I was like, wow, this is that perfect. This is exactly what I thought was going on in Book of the Short Sun when I read that. And so then I realized, well, wait a minute, it's happening on Mars. That's how Wolf does these things, right? It's a story about Mars. So these people went to Mars and then this is how the vanished people first arose on blue. They were hybridized with the trees there, whether those were the things that were used to terraform it. And there's even um, a moment where he's talking about green as a, as a world made by trees, right? That it was kind of developed and designed for them. Well, this is one of those things where they had these terraforming devices and it took over everything, right? They, they didn't uh, maybe take into account. Now, the question is whether this is alien life or whether this is something that was bioengineered and then kind of took over from there. But definitely there's a hybridization that's going on um, because that's that's deeply written into the structure of these particular novels. And I think one of the themes is that in order for something to survive, it can't just be one strain, right? It's got to be like something new that's created when two different things are merged together. And I saw the green man as kind of the ultimate extension of this. So for me, the high rows are born when that hybridization of humanity occurs and then they move elsewhere, just like the vanished people do, they go on. Right. So those are the high rows for me, like the original um, people who go elsewhere or elsewhere and disappear. And then later on the hierogametes will go up to Yassad. But I think that the power at work with that blue light is very similar to the power of Yassad, how that energy that Severian uses is actually just, uh, you know, that energy creeping down from a higher state to a lower state and not really anything innately imbued in the claw of the conciliator, but something that's about that conduit between higher and lower states of being. And I think that the, the vanished people are involved in that as well. And that's kind of the source of their power and where they went, where they, where they kind of left. Yeah, you know, I I know like your your hybrid theory. I just think it's I think it's too hard sci-fi for Wolf. Okay, but see, I think that he does hard sci-fi. I think the fifth head of Cerberus is actually hard sci-fi in terms of life cycles. So I feel like he does this every once in a while. Yeah, well, now now you've opened up another can of worms. <laughs> we, we don't we don't agree at all about the fifth head of Cerberus. Yeah, we won't go into that. We won't go into that tonight. Maybe some other time. Maybe some other time. Too much. Too much. Yeah. Okay. All right. I think we we have we have plumbed that. We don't agree about that. I don't. I don't. I don't see us agreeing. Right. But I. I think we agree on where we don't agree. Right. What about the timeline of the book of the short sun. I have a very particular idea about the timeline. Okay. Go ahead and do yours. I've talked enough. Okay. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> well. When Horn leaves, we, we actually know how long it's been that he's gone. He says that it's been two years. Two years, yep. And then three seems to have passed at other points. 
Yes. Yeah. Well, well, maybe. Um, he asks, I think it's Hyde. He asks, how long has your father been gone? And he says, about three. And then he says, well, what's that? And he never finishes. Yes. Yes. Uh-huh. Which I, I consider to be suspicious. I right. mean, everyone would assume, having read the book, that he must be must be three years. Could be months, huh? But it could be yep. months. And so that's another indication of time travel. I agree. Yeah. Well, I mean, who knows? I'm not exactly sure. There, I can't rectify that. I, but I, yeah. there's, I'm not going to claim to, but I do think that what, what we've had is Horn has died. He's become neighbor man. Then the neighbors say, we can't, we can't heal your body, but there is someone who we can take you. Well, he can't complete his mission to find Silk because Silk is dead, but they can send him back to Silk's body and thus complete his mission. In order to accomplish that, dream travel has to be uh, time travel. And that is why he can say, don't come, because it's too dangerous. In the scene where Horn goes and sends Mukor to the Long Sun to find Silk, I believe that the point that she finds Silk is actually described in Return to the World, where he goes to Blood's house with Hound, and he encounters Mukor there. And Mukor says... You've been gone a long time. I haven't. <laughs> and, uh, yes, that's completely plausible. I know exactly what you're talking about. I agree with you. And so for me, that means she's dead. Oh, no. I think that means she has just left Blue. She has just left Horn on Blue. And she recognizes that it's been a long time from the narrator's point of view that he's actually seen her. Okay. And then it's at that point, not described, okay. it's off camera, <laughs> that... He takes her back in time to meet with Silk because that's what she wants to do is find Silk. So he takes her where she finds Silk. Hold on, hold on just once. Hold on one second. One second. Um, wasn't that in – is he going to have that capability there? Yeah, sure. Right, but he doesn't have, a, he doesn't have an Inhumai or a staff with him at this point. I just don't think he has the ability to take Mucor – back to the past with him at this point without an Inhumai or the staff, because I don't think he has the ability on his own. I think he needs the female Inhumai or, or some Inhumai. And that when one is not present, he has his staff. And by this point, he hasn't cut his staff. That's right. But he, what he does have is Fava. Fava, whose body has died and she's been left in, in dreamland. She can reach him anywhere. Okay. 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 And actually there's a great scene where he's just come into Silk's body, I think, in Return to the World. And he has a dream and he sees Spider. And of course, in the dream, Spider is a representation of the vanished people because he has the multiple limbs and stuff. But then he sees these two girls mm -hmm. and they're like, be sure to take a cake to the dog. That's right. And of course, they're really talking about Triskel, which is awesome. <laughs> Um, at that scene, they're talking about Triskel because he's going to go meet Severian and the dog. And they know that because they're free from the constraints of time. But yeah, there's so many cool little things that are happening in, in those dream sequences. So yes, perhaps he does have access to Fava. You could be right there. But that's that's so right. bizarre. So bizarre. Which leads me to something else. Something else we don't agree on. Okay. But I think I kind of have come to the conclusion that and I am not it, people are going to hate this one just as I think they, they're going to hate yours <laughs> in the book of the new sun. God is not intervening anywhere in that right. story. 
God is everywhere, though. It's it's. I, I think Craig described it as an anti-atheist story because you see God nowhere, yet God is everywhere. He's everywhere. And I think that that's why I don't call it Gnostic. I call it kind of Neoplatonic, where like the universe is eminent. It like emanates from God and it's a part of his body. And that's why everything is holy. And so like that final scene on the beach, I really think is primo Neoplatonism. I feel like that's a quintessential part of it. But I think that the long sun world is Gnostic. But then once you get outside it, then you're in a Neoplatonic universe where God actually is everywhere. So... Let's talk about Silk's enlightenment. Yes, we're probably not going to agree on it because I have another mechanistic interpretation. I think I, oh, oh, really? Okay, well, you might have, we probably won't agree with your mechanistic interpretation, but I think we're going to agree on certain edges. Okay. And that's why I really find it interesting. All right, so I would like you to give your, your theory about Silk's enlightenment. Okay. So he hears the voices of a voice like a mountain and the cooing of doves, a male and a female voice. And this is why mm-hmm. I believe it's a pre-programmed message that was designed for uh, Silk by the person who planted him, Typhon. So that the voice like a mountain, Mount Typhon, and the voice like a dove. So Crane was kind of right. Something was implanted in his brain from before he was ever born, and it was set to go off, and it exploded, and it kind of set him on the path. But everything was miswound just a little bit in that clock uh, patchwork figure. So actually the outsider, the Christian God, hijacked the Enlightenment, but there's still a material reason for it. Mm-hmm. And uh, you, you have more to say. I know you have more to say. Right. So I think he knows by the end, and that's why he becomes suicidal. He knows that Pass is the one who's responsible for his Enlightenment. But um, So God doesn't directly act. He uses Typhon as an agent uh, to kind of make greater good because good comes from evil. And evil what about the voices talking in either ear? Uh, Typhon and Kypris. Yes. Okay. You are wrong, but okay. But you are not. It is an easy trick because it's very wolfy. It's, this is the this is the evil impish quality of wolf. Oh, silk, silk, and hyacinth. No, no. no. Well. Uh. You know what? Almost. Almost. Okay. okay. It's the short son narrator and Fava. These are the only ones who have to actually drop people out of time. Okay. But you know why I said it was Typhon and Kuipers? Because one has the voice of a mountain mm-hmm. and there's Mount Typhon and one yeah. has the voice that's a cooing of doves and her Kuipers' yeah. symbol is the doves. Um, so that's why I, that's why I did that. Bwah, ha, ha. And it fits. Yes. Right. I see your point. Yeah. However, we also know that Silk is Typhon. Yes. And we also know that there are more than one Kuiperses to be found. Yes, there are multiple. And oh my gosh, one of the dreams that is so crazy is the one where he's talking about how his donkey was lost in the yellow house and mother was riding it. And then Mm -hmm. mother was riding Ox bigger donkey. And it's like, oh man. So uh, (laughs) Hyacinth and and Chanel are the donkeys being ridden in those dreams. It's it's like... (laughs) Oh, Wolf, he really does love to just do that stuff in such a yeah. way. It's crazy. So yeah. I have, so this is my, okay. my larger theory, which I don't, I don't even know whether you, you know of it or what you'll think of it. But I believe that Hyacinth is Fava, set loose on, on the world by the short son narrator because 
me get my thoughts together and see where I'm going with this since I didn't write it down. Right. He does say, you remind me of someone I can't put my finger on it. Mm-hmm. He says, well, okay, let me, let's, let's start back from a, start from the beginning in that case. I believe that Silk's mother is a clone of Kuiper's, of Mamelta. And Fava's mother fed on Silk's mother. And Silk encounters Fava. Fava dies. She's trapped in dream world. At the end of the Book of the Short Sun, everyone gets off. They're, they're taken off. Where are they going? They're going to the world. But they're not just going to the world. They're going back in time to the world. In fact, at the end of the Long Sun, when all the bombs are falling, we actually encounter marble and hammerstone as people. Remember that when in Yumi go by dream travel and Jolly lands on, goes to earth. She's a regular human woman because she has a human soul and she's kind of coming on to Hyde and he warns Hyde that he shouldn't have relations with her because even though she is a fully human woman in this state, it's still not right for humans and inhumi to have sex. And so he, he retrieves Fava from dream world and sets her free on the world as Hyacinth. And this is why when Silk meets her, he is immediately taken by her because she is the soul of his mother. And so consequently, when Silk is enlightened, this is being done by the short son narrator and Fava, who in fact, by all the windy paths that Wolf leads us around on, is Pas and Kypris. Okay, very interesting. I, I just don't know that I'm ready to draw the parallel between Fava and Hyacinth yet, because I, I don't know where the mother could have fed on Silk's mother. Where could that have occurred? Well, first of all, it's entirely possible that someone has been to Green before. Right, right, right. But I'm just trying to think, you know, textually. like. But of course, the, the Inhumi have gotten into the world. Mm-hmm. And so they, they are going back and forth from Green and the world. Right. And which is why I strongly believe that Quetzal is the old Calde. Or at least I think he's somebody who fed on the old Calde. His, well, he would be his, uh, his, his mother, mother would have fed on the old Calde. Yeah. So that which means it's his soul, his soul in there. Right. Um, there is, let's see, there's one thing that I did kind of agree with. Obviously, he's attracted to Hyacinth because of his mother in her. I just thought that that was the possession of Kypris. So he's like smitten and Kypris is dominating everything that he does. And like there's scenes where, you know, it's like, oh, he's just doing what his mother wants him to do. Um, And he keeps dreaming about being with his mother when he's with Hyacinth. So clearly I do think that, yes, the, the mother is dominating that attraction because otherwise he really wouldn't be attracted to her. So I really need to reread Book of the Short Sun and look at some of the imagery associated with Fava to see how that could add up. Because I do think that Wolf usually gives you enough textually in his works from that time period to make some of the claims. Like, it's not hard to say, clearly Mamelta and Kypris and Hyacinth are all related to mother. Like, there's, there's like, it's clear parallels in the dreams. Just a little hint, all right? When you go back and, and look, Fava and Hyacinth, both beans. Ah, Hyacinth is a bean too. That's interesting. Very interesting. I will have to think about that. Um, because, yeah, there's something about Fava where he says, you remind me of someone that I knew. And it's like, who? Who exactly does he remind yeah. you of? And so 
One thing with the story that in Cleto's mother tales, it's a story about suitors who are killing each other from beyond the dead, basically, right? There's like a little um, serpent tooth that's stuck in one of the boots. And these new suitors put on the boot mm-hmm. and they die. And so the conclusion of that is that, you know, to me, it really reminded me of the one I loved. But to his spirit, it looked like his rival. Um, and so I think that that's another encapsulation of the struggle between the humans, the vanished people, and the inhumai, that they're all descended from kind of the same root, but that they can't recognize each other. They just see enemies instead of allies. Um, And I think one of the themes is that blue is actually going to become a worse place than green because the people are there are headed down a very sinister path where they put slavery. And, oh, okay, we should talk about this scene in Dorp where he, he winds up in the bar and he sees Ox Ghost. Um, he sees Ox Ghost, and then he looks at Jolly, and he thinks that she's Chanel. And he's very concerned. He's like, who was the woman you were just preying upon? And he's like, oh, <laughs> just some drunk woman. She's in the alley. He's like, is she alive? Well, what has happened yeah. here, in my opinion, because of the time travel, is that Silk went and freed Ock and Chanel from the basement. They went to the Madican Tower. And then the Auk repaired it with his ability. He came to Blue, and he survived the horrors of the Inhumai, but then he died somehow on Blue because it's a shitty place. And then um, Chanel is when, – when bad things happen to her, she goes back into drugs. And so she was either high on rust or she was drinking. Jolly feeds on her, and then Silk kind of just misses her, and he sees the ghost of Auk. And then Oreb comes a little bit later, and he's got the ring. And it's bigger, but then it shrinks down to the size and color – of the one that was on horn. So for me, there's only one ring and that's also a symbol of the planetary system. There's only one planetary system involved. It's just like the ring. It's just that one thing. It's just like silk. He looks like silk. He is silk. So for me, a lot of these themes are, it looks like there's two things, but there's only one. And there's even a scene where Jolly pretends to be an old woman and a young woman in the same house. And there's this whole thing about the color of her eyes. And he says, well, guess what? There was just one woman and she was the old and the young woman at the same time. Um, and so I think that that's the sleight of hand that Wolf has really tried to use throughout the book. Oh, wait, uh, you don't believe that uh, Jolly's mother fed on Chanel? No, I believe that she fed on Chanel right before and that Chanel's in the alley, that mm. she is on blue. That's why the ring is there. That's why Ox Ghost is there. And the tower that Silk leaves in at the end is the Madican Tower that Ock repaired. So that's- You don't think the red hair in her that we see her have on Earth is kind of a big tell? Uh, is that before or after she feeds on Chanel? Because um, I feel like she's fed, she's fed on Chanel and she kind of has that ideal. I'm sure she, it's entirely possible that she's already fed on Chanel. I can't remember. Right. But I'm not sure that that would. I'm not sure I'd, I'd be willing to say that that the the soul that you see somebody have in uh, in dream travel is based on who the inhumi fed on last. There might be some. It might look a little bit more like them. Right. For all I know, I'm not 100 percent sure. I'm not sure I'd be willing to go there. Anyway, okay. So I think I think we have enough evidence here before us. What do you suppose the difference is between our way of approaching Wolf that even though we often come to the same conclusions about details that a lot of people don't agree with? Right. Frankly, uh, Alice K. Turner never believed there was any time travel in Short Sun, Long Sun. Oh, yeah. Nothing. Agreed with nothing. So we've come to this. 
what is the the tincture that's that's wrong between the two of us? Okay, I think I think I prioritize the mystery of the Catholic rite of the Eucharist. I think it's the center of it. And I prioritize that first chapter where he's like that moment where he's like, I'm going to tell you about corn hybridity. And uh, oh, by the way, what does that have to do with the planets? It has everything to do with the planets. So like I try to take things extremely Mm -hmm. literally. And so, you know, when he says this has everything to do with the planets, I believe it. And so when he says silk knotted, I believe it at the end. So, I mean, I I think I tend to take things slightly more literally and I prioritize those Catholic rites as actually applicable. So for me, blood has to turn into plant and plant has to turn, vegetable matter has to turn into blood, uh, you know, and and that's kind of take my body, eat of it. I feel like the body has to be eaten somewhere and it has to result in something new and transcendent. And so my prioritization of those Catholic mysteries over all others as the central tenets. And then also I allegorize more. So for me, when I read something and it says, so-and-so is such and such, I take it as literally as I possibly can. I don't think you're quite as literal as I am. And so like sometimes your ideas are a little more flexible. So for me, okay, Typhon is associated with a mountain. So the voice of a mountain must be Typhon. You know, I have those very direct correlations, A to B. And that's kind of how I try to structure things. So that's my opinion on it. And so when I found like spring wind has hybridization between plant and person, okay, that's Mars. So Mars has to be involved there. I'm kind of I'm kind of trying to take those steps um, as as rigorously as I can, but they're also very um, defined, right? I don't go outside those steps very much. And so sometimes I can't make the connection. Well, it's very interesting that you believe that you you read it very literally because from my perspective, you read it very symbolically. I mean, yes, symbolism right. is very, very important to your way of reading. But for me, the symbols are literal. I think that's the difference. I believe they're allegorical symbols. And so they represent exactly one thing. So that's kind of that's yeah. kind of like my reading is like this is a symbol yeah. of this. So the frog in that story of the frog approaching the leech, or excuse me, the leech approaching the frog. The red leech is Mars. The green frog is uh, Loon. And so, like, that's the only way I can read that after I make that determination. Yeah. See, I well, I mean, I do believe that that frog means something. I'm not 100 percent right. sure what it means, but I the the issue I have with symbols is that they can mean so many different things. And- I don't think Wolf uses them that way, though. Uh, because I'm going to give you an example okay. from Peace um, real quickly. So he tells those embedded stories, right? And so they'll be like, oh, here's a story about Eliah. Well, Eliah means olive. And so, of course, this is this is olive, right? His aunt Olivia. And then there's a scene where there's um, the married Naranj. Well, Naranjo in Spanish is orange. And so the orange magnate is Julius Smart. And so this story is actually about Julius Smart, and then Ben Yaya is his servant. That means the son of John. Where is the son of John? I think that there's direct allegorical correlation between these things, and that once you see it, it well, once I see it anyway, it's very hard for me to go outside those lines. Well, the problem I have with that is that I often see Wolf working allegorically with illusion, and I see that he's got more than one thing going at one time. The actors are playing more than one role. Whereas I tend to reduce them all to one. Yeah, I'm like, yeah, this this is everything and it explains everything. So here, like in Fifth Head, all these legs, they mean one thing, right? When the legs show up or all the trees, they mean one thing. 
And so I tend to think that he's a very unified engineer, a structuralist, and I call him an Apollonian artist. I don't think he's Dionysian. I think there's only one meaning that he intends, and that once you get to the bottom of it, you've reached the bottom, and that usually his layers are triplicate. There's one that's the surface, there's one that it seems to be, and then there's a final reading that is actually closer to your initial impression. Like, for example, when Dorcas is resurrected, we don't know that Severian has the claw. Well, because it wasn't the claw, right? That was kind of like the MacGuffin. It was Severian all along in his connection with Yassad. So in that way, we were closer to the truth before we understood the plot than we were. And a big green and blue planet, we're closer to the truth than we were when we know that they're different places on the second layer. So we need to get down to that third layer where we recognize that, okay, we're back where we started, but we understand the connections now. Now, now I disagree, and I'll tell you why. Okay. I, I don't want to debate it, but... but I do see the the second book of the the fifth head of Cerberus, as you know, as being two stories laid right over top of each other. Yes. Another example of that is something that I had a, when we talked to uh, to Mantis recently. He was talking about all of the close allusion to the Great Expectations in the fourth chapter, uh, Triscally, when Varian meets Valeria, okay. and. You have this this character that he meets that is sort of a merging of Estella and Miss Havisham. She's the girl, the, the young woman, and she's the old woman at the same time. And Craig asked uh, Michael, he says, so is she Estella or is she Miss Havisham? And, and Michael, making a joke at my expense, it was a very funny joke, says, Neither. She's Olivia from the Twelfth Night. <laughs> and I didn't catch it, but then when I'm going to edit, I said, oh, he made a mistake. He made a mistake because I don't say that she's Olivia from the Twelfth Night. I say that she's Viola from the Twelfth Night. But wait a minute. Olivia is a type of Miss Havisham. She lives secluded ever since her father and brother died. She's just like that. She has this this young ward, just like that. Oh my gosh, she not only is a merging of Miss Havisham and Estella, but she's also a merging of Olivia and Viola. So that's a good. That's just one example of the way that I see Wolf being incredibly clever, much too clever for me to just say, "Oh, well, this represents such, and therefore it means." that this is what's going to happen. I've been tricked so many times. He's so subversive. You, you start with a story, it looks like he's following right along, and he's so subvert, he subverts it so much. That's, that's where we're different. See, I don't think he subverts anything. I think he's just so innately tied to tradition that if we knew everything, we would understand everything about it. So like, I have a very Apollonian sense of him that he's not subversive, that he's completely traditional. And so I have faith in like those Catholic rites. I say, this is the heart of it, right? So for example, um, horrors of war. You're like, is it a horror? Is it, is it, is it a man? Um, and then the, you have the, the star, Right at the very beginning, there's like the star of Bethlehem almost. And so obviously for me, that's the big clue. Yes, he is fully horror, but the whole point of the story is that he has become fully human as well. So like, yeah, there's 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 complex things, but I feel like Wolf always gives us enough to make a firm stance on and that it's, it is sometimes symbolic in nature. But 
you know, that's why I don't really play a lot of the illusion games that mm-hmm. some people do. I tend to stick to the religious ones more than like, oh, okay, let's look at Dickens here, for example. Uh, there's a few times where I've had to because I couldn't explain things in the text. Uh, so my reading of Sorcerer's House, which we won't get into here because it's way too complicated. I, I, could, I was like, <laughs> everything is pointing at this thing right here. I don't know what the heck this is. So I had to, I had to go look it up and I found it. And I was like, oh okay, it really is an allusion to this and it explains a lot of other things. But like Home Fires, for example, there's a guy who gets killed off screen and then there's another dude who kills somebody and we don't know anything about it. And it looks like those two mysteries are insoluble. But of course, those two mysteries solve each other because obviously he's killing the dude who didn't get killed off screen at all. It's just we can't put them together until we realize something very sinister. Yes, that's very that's very Wolfian that you have two things that are the answer to each other. I think I, I brought this up when I described the uh, my fifth theory. Yeah. That you have two things sitting out there. They're both mysteries. Right. And both imply something that isn't true. The only way you can do it is to somehow solve them both at the same time. Right. Throw them together. Yep. Yeah, I totally agree with that. So that's my general approach. Like if there's two mysteries, see if they can solve each other. And if home fires, I was astonished when I was like, oh my gosh, okay, this is the guy who killed this dude. And suddenly that changes the whole story. Those are the, it's those, those little insights that you come up with that I, I find yeah. most appealing that really, oh yeah, Mark's figured it out. Yes. Those are very, you know, very technical, but very wolfy and plot elements. Yes. Plot I don't element. know how many exactly. times it's only by following, oh, okay, he's following a pattern here from some other story that I suddenly realize, oh, wow. Okay. Yeah. <laughs> now I, I see where we're going here. It's not an answer though. I know what, I don't believe that I can follow that and say, okay, I know what's going to happen next. It's like if you're in the woods and you find bear scat and then you find claws on the tree, you say, oh, I think that there are bears here. <laughs> <laughs> so, I mean, in general, I think it could be that um, behind all that, it could be that a lot of it is just like that arrogant brashness to my character where I'm like, yes, I understand this mm-hmm. because uh, I, I do feel there are some things I don't understand. You know, for sure. And like land across, I still, I just don't understand final import of, of some of the subtext that I'm seeing. Cause I see these patterns and yet it's not solidifying into one distinct one. And so usually when I feel like I've solved, I'm going to put that in quotes, solved something. I feel like all the little details really come into focus for me and I can make a grand arching uh, kind of statement And I feel like the late novels, especially, I had success with that because Wolf really was writing puzzle boxes a lot Uh at the end of his career. The early ones, not so much, right? Every once in a while, you feel like, okay, this is a mystery. I can solve it. But I feel like his late novels, he really went all in on, okay, here's a mystery. Now, let's see if you can get to the bottom of it. And there often wasn't really enough information unless you had like a sixth sense or something like ESP. The nasty thing about the, the early novels is that they're basically little stories that exist inside this very grand story. Mm-hmm. And Wolf has chosen very deliberately not to tell the grand story. Right. And also all of you get all these little hints about it, but a lot of them explain why people do this or why people do that. And he's not including any of that. You're supposed to somehow fill in that grand story. And there might be some, there might be some answers. Obviously, that's kind of one of those enlightening things that, oh man, 
he's not wolf does not play fair often he doesn't i mean no. there's not an answer to every one of those things you can what i have to do is i, I start with here's a problem this doesn't make any sense and so i make a a little story that would explain what what is happening here and i run it through the rest of the story and you know sometimes it works and sometimes it doesn't and sometimes it it answers almost all the questions but you have a big roadblock in which case i know that my story isn't right but I have a good sense that I might be onto something. It's just that there's something wrong. There's something very fundamentally wrong with uh, with the yeah. story. So having said that, is there any other big major points before we call it a night that you think we should discuss about long sun or short sun? Uh, we've talked about that. Yeah, I don't think so. I think uh, I think those are the main things that we all okay. agree. We, we agree on what we agree on. We right. don't always agree on why. And we don't exactly. always agree on what that what we agree on implies. <laughs> it's, right, right. But I do think that it is definitely the future step of humanity, the heroes. Yes. Yeah, okay. <laughs> we, all, we do agree on that, even though we don't yeah. agree on the particulars of them. The mechanism. Yeah. yeah, and what it means. Okay. Well, thank you. Thank you. This yeah, is sure. Your, thank this you, really James. a lot. And um, so yeah, we'll... We'll move on right back on to the regular schedule. You guys can definitely comment, you know, all the regular places on Facebook, on Reddit, on Twitter, on Instagram. And uh, I'll be interested to hear what you say. I'm sure there must be other ways of reading these books and coming to an understanding of what's going on. It's just really interesting to me that Mark and I approach these books in seemingly in similar ways, but actually in very different ways and that we've often come to the same conclusions despite those differences. Right. And so some people might just say that we're crazy. <laughs> yeah. yeah. Well, yeah. That, like you're that, both crazy. That could be the link right there. <laughs> right. They're both insane. That's that's what they have in common. <laughs> <laughs> They're tapping to each other inside their cell doors at the wall. So. <laughs> exactly. Okay. Well, thank you. Thanks, Mark. Thank you, James. I really appreciate talking it to you. It was great. Like a tunnel that you follow tunnel of its own Down a hollow to a cavern Where the sun has never shone Like a door that keeps revolving In a half-forgotten dream Or the ripples from a pebble Someone tosses in a stream like a clock whose hands are sweeping past the minutes of its face And the world is like an apple whirling silently in space Like the circles that you find in the windmills of your Is that jingle in your pocket? Where's that jangle in your head? Why did summer go so quickly? Was it something that you said? Lovers walk along the shore and leave their footprints in the sand. Is the sound of distant drumming just the Just hanging in a hallway And the fragment of a song Half remembered 
this I just take it and edit it into a nice conversation. Sometimes I go on and on belaboring a point and it's just, <laughs> I say, oh, okay, I've made my point. Let's get rid of most of that. <laughs>